I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we take all of Scripture seriously and attempt to unify the Word of God as one book that can then be applied to our lives. For eight weeks now, we've been discussing the tabernacle and all that is attached to it. The tent, the furniture, the garments, the priesthood, and so much more. This tour has led us through every segment of Scripture, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 and many of the places in between. We have seen how the tabernacle models for us what relationship with Hashem, the God of all creation, looks like on several levels. It describes how God approaches man beginning in our hearts and working outward into our mind and then our circumstances, our lives. And this is revealed in the order of the instructions that are given at the beginning of the tabernacle in chapter 25. But humans, human beings, we approach God differently. While we tend to recognize that an internal change has occurred in our lives when God approaches us and we begin to enter into relationship with Him, we begin with the outward. We begin with the what then shall we do mentality. And contrary to popular Christianity, there are things that we can do to deepen our relationship with Hashem. And the primary thing that we can do is also modeled in the tabernacle. We can communicate with them. We can pray. We can open our mouths and speak to the God of all creation. And as we speak to Him, we will begin to recognize when He speaks to us. And He will speak to us if we listen. And this truth, the way to speak to him, the path of approach, is one that is modeled in the tabernacle for us to learn from. And alongside these truths of relationship with Hashem, there are revelations of our place and status and the expectations that are placed upon us as his people. We are told of the high priest who will bear Israel upon his heart before the Father, the one who will carry the weight of Israel on his shoulders, and who is clothed in honor, holiness, and righteousness the one who judges righteously and represents Hashem's people to him. And alongside the high priests, we explored the priesthood, those who serve in close proximity to Hashem, those who represent God to men and men to God, clothed in righteousness. These men who take up the calling that all men were given in the garden, who have been elevated in honor and brought close to Hashem, to serve and protect the holiness of God and to live in relationship to him to rule and to reign with him, not opposed to him. And all of this we discover is to be solely focused in Hashem and not combined or diluted with other worship practices or directed to other gods. The tabernacle in its entirety is a fascinating study with vast depths of truth contained within the text that we have. And yet, 
After eight weeks, we're not yet done with the tabernacle. But we are, for the next three weeks, going to take a hiatus in our study of the tabernacle and shift our focus just a bit slightly. We will return to the tabernacle four weeks from now, but for now, we're going to be shifting our focus slightly because the text shifts slightly. So while we are still in what is considered the tabernacle narrative, our topic this week is not connected to the tabernacle as much. Here at the very end of the instructions for the tabernacle as given by Hashem to Moses, we discovered that there are two topics that while intimately connected to the tabernacle, they're not limited to the tabernacle. Those two topics are work and Shabbat, the two modes of life that describe what we are to do with our daily lives. So let's go ahead and read this week's Parsha and then discuss this dichotomy, work and Shabbat. Exodus chapter 31 And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Yehuda, And I have filled him with the spirit of Elohim in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all work, to make designs for work in gold and in silver and in bronze, and in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in all work. And I, look, I have appointed him with Oholiab, the son of Achisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I put wisdom in the hearts of everyone who is wise-hearted, and they shall make all that I have commanded you, the tent of appointment and the ark of the witness, and the lid of atonement that is on it, and all the utensils of the tent, and the table and its utensils, and the clean gold lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of ascending offering with its utensils, and the basin and its stand and the woven garments and the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments for his sons, serving as priests, and the anointing oil and the sweet incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they are to do. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, And you, speak to the children of Israel, saying, My Sabbaths you are to guard by all means, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generation, to know that I, Hashem, am setting you apart. And you shall guard the Sabbath, for it is set apart to you. Everyone who profanes it shall certainly be put to death, for anyone who does work on it, that being shall be cut off from among his people. Six days work is to be done, and on the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest, holy to Hashem. Everyone doing work on the Sabbath day shall certainly be put to death, and the children of Israel shall guard the Sabbath to perform the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. Between me and the children of Israel it is a sign forever. For in six days Hashem made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And when he had ended speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moshe two tablets of the witness, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. When it comes to the topic of work, there are two extremes that the world has arrived at. The first can best be summed up as sloth or laziness, or as many term it, leisure. In 1985, an author by the name of Bob Black wrote an essay entitled The Abolition of Work. This writing opened with this declaration. No one should ever work. Work is the source of nearly all the misery in the world. Almost any evil you'd care to name comes from working or from living in a world designed for work. In order to stop suffering, we have to stop working. Bob Black, as well as others, present this idea that work is equivalent to self-violence or self-mutilation. He proposes that no one wants to do work, but rather that humans desire leisure above all else. And if we could achieve a society without work, we could have a society of peace and harmony. Now, we know this to be foolishness. In fact, many secular philosophers recognize the fallacy in this way of thinking. 
And so, as is all too often the case, the opposite stance is taken. A stance which would have humans working all the time. No break, no rest. A Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor of the late 2nd century, had this to say about work. When you find it hard to rise from your sleep, remind yourself that the fulfillment of your social duties accords with the requirements of your constitution and of man's nature, whilst sleep is something that you share in common with animals devoid of reason. Sigmund Freud stated in his book Civilization and Its Discontents that man needs two things in order to be happy, work and love, love and work. Even a modern researcher, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, discovered in a study that he conducted and he recorded in a book named Flow. Now, what was unexpected from his experiment is how frequently people reported flow situations while at work and how rarely they experienced flow while in leisure. Now, the term flow here is used to describe an optimal experience, including things like optimal emotional state, the challenge of the project, immersion in your activity, and so forth. Flow is a state of a person when engaged in life fully and facing it head on. In our modern world, we work so that we can afford a mortgage, so that we can afford a car payment, so that we can have a peace of mind. We work so that should things go wrong, we're covered. We at least have money. Usually we work for the purpose of living the life that we've all grown accustomed to living, to be able to afford the accoutrement of the modern world. But is this idea biblical? What does the Bible say about work and how it should be engaged in and the purposes for our work? Well, we find out in the first pages of the Bible that in the beginning God worked on our behalf. He fashioned this world and created all that is in it. And if we consider, we discover that the work that he engaged in on those very first pages was work that was accomplished for the benefit of all living creatures. The only benefit that Hashem received from his work is a populated universe that declares his glory. And in Psalm 19.1, the heavens are proclaiming the honor of God and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. All other benefits that was derived from the work that Hashem accomplished on those first six days is ours. We benefit from light and air and land and vegetation and sun and stars and animals of all kinds. And we, those who are his, those who are of the light, are the ultimate expression of God's creation. Isaiah 43, 6-7 says, And I shall say to the north, Give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, all those who are called by my name, whom I have created and formed, and even made for my glory, my honor. We humans, we are the image of God that was created in the beginning for the purpose of serving him. Genesis 2.15 And Hashem God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to guard it. And our purpose as humanity from the beginning, even before the fall, was to work, to serve Hashem in his garden. All that Hashem did in creation was for our benefit. All that he asks in return is for us to return honor to him to serve with a clean heart, to act as his image in the world. Colossians 3.23 And whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Master, and not to men. 
His work was done for our benefit. And according to Paul and Colossians, it's our role to then accomplish our work as if it were for him. And in 1 Corinthians 10, we see this idea taken one step further. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Our labor should not just be done for him, but for the purpose of increasing his honor in the earth, for the purpose of making him great among those who we work with and among. For if we consider the many possible reasons for work in our existence, how many of us would answer the question of why you work with the answer of, well, for the glory of God, of course. And whether we answered that way or not, how many of us could then honestly say that this is the primary reason that you wake up in the morning and drag yourself out of bed? To glorify God? To mimic his creative activity and and through that to demonstrate his qualities? Is this our reason for rising or are we just trying to avoid stuff? A house, a car, a bigger TV, internet, food, a retirement, toys. Are we working for our benefit to live a better life? Is that the purpose of work in Scripture? Not at all. The first purpose of work is to work for God, to make Him your boss at all times, to declare His kingdom to the world through your actions, and to bring Him honor. What is the second purpose of work as described biblically? Well, if we look to Genesis 1, we've already seen it. God's work was done for our benefit. His work was for the purpose of giving life to those with life, humanity. And as we look through scripture, we discover the same principle flipped on its head a bit and then applied back to us. When we work, it should never be for our own benefit or even solely for the benefit of our family and our close relatives. Leviticus 23.22 says, And when you reap the harvest of your land, do not completely reap the corners of your field when you reap, and do not gather any gleaning from your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am Hashem your God. So you are to reap of your labor for your benefit, but you are also to leave behind a portion of your income for the poor to take part in. Now there's a bit more going on here, but this passage serves in laying down this base principle. Deuteronomy 15, 7-11 says, When there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, within any of the gates in your land which Hashem your God has given you, do not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, for you shall certainly open your hand to him and certainly lend him enough for his need, whatever he needs. Be on guard, lest there be a thought of Belial in your heart, saying, Well, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye is evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he shall cry out to Adonai against you, and it shall be a sin in you. And you shall certainly give to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him. Because for this reason Hashem your God does bless you in all your works, and in all to which you put your hand. Because the poor one does not cease from the land. Therefore I am commanding you, saying, You shall certainly open your hand to your brother, to your poor, and to your needy one in your land. Again, We are to share of what we have with those who do not have. We are to give to them without holding back, without thought of repayment. And if you do this, God blesses you in your labor. Ephesians 4.28 Let him who stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, so that he has something to share with those in need. 
if one of us were to write this passage, what kind of focus would we put on it? We would say something about working with his own hands so he doesn't have to take any more. But that's not how Paul advises. Paul recommends that the thief labor at a protective trade so that he has something to give to others. Not to prevent him from stealing at all, but rather so that he has something to give. Philippians 2, 3-4 Doing none at all through selfishness or self-conceit, but in humility. Consider others better than yourself. Each one should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Just as Hashem worked for our benefit and to give life to us, our work is also supposed to be outward-focused. We are expected to give to others with what we bring in, with what we create. The second idea of work is that we are to work not only for our own personal benefits, we are to work for the benefit of those who are worse off. Work is to be engaged in for God's benefit, for the only thing that we can possibly give Him. Honor, worship, and praise. And work. And work is also for the purpose of the benefit of those who are in need. So that brings us to the third reason of work, according to Scripture. Independence from the nations, otherwise stated as independence from debt, to be free from outside influence that might control how we live and how we act. Proverbs 22.7, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. Proverbs 22.26-27, do not be one of those who shakes hands in a pledge, one of those who are guarantors for a debt. If you do not have the means to pay, why should he take away your bed from you? First Thessalonians 4, 11-12 And to make it your ambition to live peaceably and to attend to your own work and to work with your hands as we commanded you, so that you behave decently towards those who are outside and not be in any need. Or Romans 13, 7-8 Render therefore to all what is due to them, tax to whom taxes due, toll to whom toll, fear to whom fear, Respect to whom respect. Owe no one any matter except to love one another, for he who loves one another has filled up the Torah. But for many of us, we are indebted to others. We have made ourselves slaves for various reasons. Usually it's for a car or a house. Often it's for things that we need like medical bills or clothing or food. All too often it's for the purpose of education. I'm not immune to this. I still have some debt on a student loan. I'm preaching to myself as much as to anyone else. But I'm only stating a fact of our society as well. I'm not trying to be any better than anyone else. The third reason for work is so that we can live life without owing anyone anything other than our honor. Too many of us, we work so that we have enough simply to make the payments on what we owe. But the purpose of work is to protect ourselves from becoming slaves to the man, the person who owns our loans. So the purpose of work itself is multifaceted. and When we work, it should be for all of these reasons. Not just to live our lives alone in isolation from others or to keep our money for our own benefit, to get that second house or another car or the boat or the robot servant or whatever. Work is not meant to enrich only ourselves. It is meant for the purpose of enriching all of those around us whether through labor exercised on their behalf or through gifts or donations to those who are in need. Work is meant to benefit everyone. A person's work does not benefit them alone. 
It benefits the community by keeping his people from being enslaved by the nations. It benefits the poor of the community so that no one goes without. And most of all, when entered into properly, our labor benefits God by bringing honor and glory to him, by declaring his qualities and character to all who are around us. And so as we turn to this week's Parsha, we see this very thing being described in the text. The work that is being referred to here in the opening of chapter 31 of Exodus is a type of work that benefits everyone. And it is a work that fulfills all of these three purposes that we've just covered. The building of the tabernacle, it brings glory to God. It declares his qualities and attributes to all who have understanding. One might say that this is work for the kingdom of God working to create a place for Adonai to occupy in our world. It is the Matthew 6 ideal of seeking first the kingdom of God. Second purpose of the tabernacle is to help others, to provide a means of redemption for the people, a place of relationship with God on one hand, and on the other hand, the tabernacle provides the means of sustenance for the priests as they would eat primarily the sacrifice, the sacrifices that were brought while they were serving in the tabernacle or the temple. The third ideal is to provide independence from the nations. The tabernacle provided a means of independence from foreign gods. And the presence of God and proper worship provided a means of political independence. All three purposes of work that I've identified for today, they were present in the work that was done on the tabernacle. Now hear me, please. I'm not saying that these are the only purposes for work that are present in Scripture. I'm saying that these are the three most highlighted reasons for work in Scripture. Other reasons, such as saving for a rainy day, preparation for disaster, wealth accumulation, they may appear here or there in limited use. The three that I've mentioned, however, they're represented reliably throughout the text of Scripture in one way or another. So work itself is God-mandated, but we discover throughout Scripture that people are created with different gifts and different talents with which to accomplish their work. And it's on us to know what talents we've been blessed with and to leverage those towards the kingdom of God and the good of the community and the lifting up of the poor through our work. So in the creation story, we find that the work that God accomplishes is the work of creation. He makes things. In Genesis 1.1, the word used for creation is the verb bara. And if we search one scripture from one end to the other, the only one who ever baras anything is Hashem. He is the creator. He is the originator of all things. Humans, we are not creators in the same way. The word used for what is accomplished through human labor is the word asa, which is to make or to fashion, to produce or to accomplish. And here in Exodus 31, we see the work that the people are being tasked with is the work of making the tabernacle. Exodus 31 verse 6, And I, look, I have appointed with him Aholiah, the son of Achisamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I put wisdom in their hearts for everyone who is wise-hearted, and they shall make Asa, all that I have commanded you. And there are these two men specifically who are highlighted to be the ones who have been gifted to oversee this task. The first is Bezalel, whose name means in the shadow of God. The second is Oholiab, whose name means the Father's tent. Both of these names, they bear a ton of meaning and connection to the tabernacle. The tent of the Father and the shadow of God. These are the two foremen of the tabernacle project. Bezalel was from Judah, the preeminent tribe, the tribe that led the procession when Israel moved in the wilderness. 
the tribe that was given leadership and authority over Israel. And then there's Oholiab and the tribe of Dan. Dan was the last tribe to travel when Israel moved. This is the tribe that's missing from the listing of the sons of Israel in Revelation 7. Two men from opposite sides of the tracks, so to speak. But all of Israel represented in the choice of these two men. And both men were given the Spirit of God with which to accomplish their tasks. Betelel, it is specifically stated, was gifted with the spirits of wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Aholiab, it only says, was appointed alongside Betelel. Now, I take this to mean that he received the same spirits of wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. All and all others who were to help the wise-hearted were also granted wisdom to be able to create the items for the tabernacle. And they were given the Spirit of God in order to accomplish this task of creation. Specifically, the Spirit of wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Now, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge are given for the purpose of creation. And these three spirits, they're not unique, and they are used in conjunction with each other in other places of Scripture as well. And at least once, it's also then connected to the act of creation. In Proverbs 8, it begins with the concept of wisdom and understanding being used in conjunction to discover knowledge. Proverbs 8, 1-12 through 12. Does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice? On the top of the heights along the way, between the paths she has taken her stand. Beside the gates to the city, at the entrances she shouts, O men, I call to you, and my voice is to the sons of men. You simple ones, understand insight, and you fools, be of an understanding heart. Listen, for I speak noble words, and the opening of my lips is about straightness. For my mouth speaks truth, and the wrongness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are in righteousness, none of them twisted or crooked, all of them plain to him who understands and straight to those who find knowledge. Accept my discipline, and not silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than rubies, and all delights are not comparable to her. I, wisdom, have dwelt with insight, and I find knowledge foresight. The chapter then continues on for some time in this vein, and then it picks up later in verse 22 through verse 31. Hashem possessed me at the beginning of his ways, as the first of his works of old. I was set up ages ago, at the first, before the earth ever was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs heavy with water. Before the mountains were sunk, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth and the fields, out of the first dust of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep. When he set the clouds above. When he made the foundations of the deep strong. When he gave to the sea its law, so that the waters would not transgress his mouth. When he inscribed the fountains of the earth, then I was beside him, a master workman, and I was his delight day by day, rejoicing before him all the time. Rejoicing in the world, his earth and my delights were with the sons of men. Wisdom was present in the beginning. Wisdom was the first of Hashem's works. And it is through wisdom that the world was created. Now the same idea is echoed in Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 12. He has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom, and he stretched out the heavens by his understanding. And so here in the tabernacle, this microcosm of the cosmos, wisdom was gifted to those engaging in the labor for the purpose of creating something for God. And the truth is that the spirit of wisdom precedes the construction of anything that is created for God. 
Solomon, for example, was gifted with great wisdom, and he was also given the task of building the temple for God. Daniel and his friends were given wisdom and knowledge, and Daniel was additionally given understanding when they were taken to Babylon to create space for those who were entering exile. Daniel 1.17 As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Wisdom is more than simply knowing what to do with something. It is putting into practice the things that you know. It is creating something for God. And it is these three things that Paul declares that he prays for the church in Colossae. Colossians 1, 9-11 That is also why we, from the day we heard, have not ceased praying for you and asking that you be filled with knowledge of his desire and all wisdom and spiritual understanding to walk worthily of the Master, pleasing all, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being empowered with all power according to the might of his honor, for all endurance and patience with joy. Wisdom and understanding in order to bring forth good fruit and to walk worthy of the Master, Yeshua, our Messiah. So while these qualities, they will lead someone to being successful in the work, they can also lead some astray. They can lead us off into the realm of pride. Ezekiel 28, 3-7 Look, are you wiser than Daniel? Has no secret been hidden from you? By your wisdom and your understanding you have made riches for yourself and gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom and by your trade you have increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Therefore, thus said the Master Hashem, Because you have set your heart as the heart of God, therefore, see, I am bringing against you strangers, the ruthless ones of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the loveliness of your wisdom, and they shall profane your splendor. The king of Tyre in this passage had wisdom and understanding, and through these he made himself rich. He gathered silver and gold into large bank accounts, and he became prideful in his riches, and he began to trust them and not trust God. In the same way, Solomon, who had wisdom and understanding in great measure, and yet, despite it, Solomon was led astray. He used his wisdom to enrich himself off the backs of his people. He enslaved the people of Israel in order to build him a palace. Wisdom and understanding will allow a person's work to be successful, but it will not ensure that a person uses that labor properly. The king of Sor and Solomon, among others, are criticized in Scripture for building large storehouses for themselves, for accruing great wealth through their wisdom and allowing their wealth to give them a sense of pride over others. They perverted the purpose of their work. They used it for their own honor. They kept it to themselves while others suffered, even going so far as to cause others to suffer in order to gain their wealth. The only part that they could be said to have kept of those three purposes earlier, is allowing their labor to gain independence from others. But they took it too far and they allowed their wealth to become a way of gaining independence from God. Now I hope that you can see that work is an integral part of our existence on earth and it is not a result of the fall. It is our labor that allows us to accomplish things for a great purpose, a purpose much greater than ourselves. And if we stop here and simply consider this idea of the necessity and the high calling of work in our lives, we might arrive at a similar conclusion that Marcus Aurelius did. 
we might think that work is such a wonderful and valuable expression of God and our own humanity that rest, well, it's unnecessary. It should be avoided. In fact, this was such a common thought among the Romans and the Greeks in the times of the Jew occupation of the Jewish lands that they thought the Jews to be lazy. Josephus tells us that the Jews' insistence on taking a day off every week and then taking other holidays as well to rest and rejoice were seen as simple lassitude. An overabundance of the ideal of work leads many to the conclusion that any rest is laziness and should be avoided. But on the other side of the equation, an understanding of work as a form of punishment leads to true and actual slothfulness. And so it's into this tension that God gives a prescription. Work is to be done for six days. Now, there are two ways of understanding this. Either it could be work can be done for six days, or it can mean for six days work should be done. Now, if the second is the case, then vacations are out of the window. Six days you shall work. That means you better work six days out of seven, no matter where you're at, no matter what you're doing. You better be working six out of seven. But if it's the first, then these six days are simply the window in which work should be done. But work itself isn't mandatory during these days. Regardless of how you understand this, God built a cycle of rest into the calling of work. Once every seven days, we are to rest. We are to take a day off from our normal labor practices and have some downtime. But just as with work, there is a purpose for this rest. It's not just a day to kick up our feet, but rather it's a day that is to be sanctified to Hashem. And this chapter lays out several reasons why Shabbat was given to the people, but the primary reason we find in connection to the tabernacle. Regardless of how much your work may bring honor to Hashem or provide for those in need, take a break. Even building the tabernacle, a place for Hashem to dwell with His people, should be set aside for a day. Shabbat is a command that is so serious that the command is accompanied by a command to have any transgressors put to death or cut off from their people, and it's repeated three times. Sabbath rest is serious to God. But why is it so serious? Why the command to put to death anyone who does not keep the Sabbath? The first reason is found in verse 13. The Sabbath is a sign between me and you. The Sabbath was created as a time for the people of God to come together and to worship God. It is a time of relationship with the Most High. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, in his book, The Sabbath, Its Meaning for Modern Man, suggests a rather profound idea. If the tabernacle is being built as a place for dwelling with the Most High God of creation, then the Sabbath is itself its own tabernacle. It is a tabernacle that's not in space. Rather, it's a tabernacle in time. A tabernacle that we come to every week, which allows us to come together, not just with each other, but to join in relationship with God. And it is, in a way, our date day with the God of creation, our time of union and worship with Him. Just as the tabernacle creates in space a holy place with special rules, so too does the Sabbath. And just as God's holy place in space is not to be defiled, and any who defile it are to be cut off, so too any who defile the holy place in time are to be cut off.
Imagine setting a day to take a date with your spouse. It's planned. It's marked on the calendar with a giant red circle even. And when you show up for your date, your spouse, well, your spouse is busy. They're working their way at a task that's been given to them by you. The task itself is valuable. The task is necessary. But how do you feel if your spouse spent the entire day of your date, the day of your meeting, occupied and distracted with this work? While working for your benefit, they never actually take time to be with you. How would you react? What would you do? Well, finally, this chapter tells us something else of import regarding the Sabbath. We find it in verse 17. Once again, it's repeated that the Sabbath is a sign between God and Israel. And this is the key as seeing this repeated statement as different from the last time that we read that the Sabbath is a sign back in verse 13. It's found in the last half of this verse. For in six days Hashem made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day He rested and was refreshed. The command to keep the Sabbath as a sign the second time is directly connected to the fact that Hashem Himself rested on the Sabbath. Why? Because it tells others of our God. It's a declaration that we serve the God of creation. And it's a recognition that he created our universe and our world to include rest. And as we saw back in Exodus 20, the Sabbath was connected to God's act of creation there as well. And when we view the Ten Commandments in parallel, we discover that the Sabbath is one of the primary ways that we bear witness of the God that we serve. But what about caring for the poor? Doesn't that tell others of the God that we serve? I mean, that would make sense if caring for the poor was unique to the God of Abraham, but that's not the case. What about caring for orphans or widows or sacrifice or eating clean? Each of these things can be found in other religions, worshiping other gods. Even circumcision is practiced by other religions. The Sabbath is the one command that is uniquely and wholly biblical. Other religions, do they have a day off? Sure, but it's not the Sabbath. And so the Sabbath becomes for the people of Israel the sole reliable witness to the world of the God that we serve. In the New Testament, it's often stated that Yeshua broke the Sabbath command. But if you look closely, every time that the accusation is made, it's not said that he broke the command. It is a claim that someone is making about Yeshua. He didn't actually break the Sabbath. He fulfilled the Sabbath. In fact, he declares, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And what has modern Christianity done with that? Well, if he is the Lord of the Sabbath, then we don't need a Sabbath? We don't need to honor this day that he is the Lord of? I can't wrap my mind around that. I used to before I really thought about it, but I can't wrap my mind around that anymore. And from all of this, we recognize that the rest of the world, they have it backward. They've gone to the extremes in their misunderstanding of practice and work. They take the stance that work is to be avoided at all costs, 
that it is a punishment and a drudgery. And to be sure, some professions are in fact drudgery. But work itself is to be engaged in fully. It's how we take this world of corruption and we impose order upon it. And on the other side of those who worship work, who see every day as an opportunity to work and who look down on anyone who would dare take a break. This too is too far from the side of truth. Work is valuable and worthwhile and part of our calling and duty as humans. But so too is rest and relaxation. Not a single bit of it is to be engaged in for our personal gratification or for our personal means. Our primary focus in both our work and our rest is to be Hashem. Both are for the purpose of His honor and glory. And this is one of the most important facets of the process of Deresh Chai. Recognizing the time and the place for certain activities to occur. Or the lack of activities to occur. It's responding to the phases in life properly as God describes them in scripture and as he intends for us to live them. This is how we are to live our lives as we accomplish this process of seeking life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.